Welcome to Seminarian Table Talk. My name is Thomas Johnston. And I'm Jaron Summers. And today we have a very special guest. Um, our guest today is the Reverend Dr. Robert Cole, Professor of Systematic Theology at Concordia Lutheran Seminary in St. Louis. Dr. Cole. Yeah, we, we are very excited to have you here. Thank you very much for graciously accepting our invitation. It is so exciting. Maybe you could tell our listeners something about yourself. Who is Dr. Kolb? Uh, my students aren't always real sure if I was at the Diet of Worms or not. Um, but uh, I wasn't. Uh, but I spent a lot of time in Germany. Uh, I'm at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis and have taught here for over a quarter of a century now. I've been retired for almost half of that time. Uh, but have spent a lot of time uh, representing the seminary, uh, first of all, and then uh, later on my own doing research. Uh, the seminary uh, had funding to contribute to the life of post-Soviet churches, really Eastern European churches in the 1990s. And, and so my wife and I got the chance to, to see a good bit of that part of the world. But uh, from my graduate school days, uh, getting close to 50 years ago, uh, the uh, the Reformation and specifically Luther's and Melanchthon's impact on their students have been my research area. Uh, but uh, in recent years, because of the 2017 festivities, I've, I've spent a whole lot more time with Luther and enjoyed that, that aspect of study a great deal. Yeah, we, we have you on today to discuss a very important topic and one that I think a lot of people neglect to cover in detail. Um, Thomas, what is what is that topic? So today's topic for the day is uh, the 500th anniversary of the Diet of Worms. Um, Dr. Cole, what is a diet? Um, I, I thought as a kid that they made him eat worms, <laughs> but that's not quite the definition in this case. Uh, a diet is uh, a, an assembly. Um, we might even use the word uh, as it, it was used for a, a convention, but it was really the assembly that was the equivalent of our Congress. The uh, German Empire was divided into... Um, a hundred sort of free and independent uh, cities that were responsible only to the em emperor himself. Uh, probably at least that many uh, small holdings of local nobles. And then uh, maybe 30 or 40 larger territorial uh, princes ruled specific sections. Some were called dukes, some were called counts of various kinds. And uh, so uh, it, was a, it was a real patchwork. And each of those uh, governmental units had a fair amount of independence, but they all gathered uh, under one German emperor. And the emperor at the time uh, of Luther's growing up, his university uh, study and the like, was the, the Duke of Austria, Maximilian, uh, and his grandson then, Charles V, succeeded him in 1519. So he was presiding over his empire in 1521 when Luther, who had just been condemned by the, by the papal court uh, and 
ordered to be executed, burned at the stake. Uh, uh, that, that happened in January of 1521. And so uh, Charles V had this heretic running around loose and had to do something about, about that. So Charles V invites Luther to this diet. And so in today's language for our listeners, it'd almost be like Martin Luther defending himself in front of the U.S. Congress, which also serves as judge, jury, and executioner, correct? Is that kind that, of what it would have been that, like? That's exactly um, right, John. Uh, the, the emperor didn't really want to summon Luther. Uh, Charles, interestingly enough, just a, a side note, Charles was probably, the, in theory, the most powerful man in Europe between Charlemagne and Napoleon. His uh, grandparents on his father's side were Maximilian of Austria, and Austria controlled a good deal of, of uh, territory in southern Germany, uh, had strong relationships with Hungary, and would then more or less become the monarchs of Hungary late, uh, within Luther's lifetime. Um, Maximilian's wife was Mary of Burgundy. She inherited what was left of a, of a, of a small uh, principality that included the Netherlands and some territories in what's now Eastern France uh, that didn't come to, to, to Charles, but the Netherlands did. And in the Netherlands and in Austria, there were good sources of funding. So Charles did have financial power. Now on his mother's side, you may recognize the name of his maternal grandparents. Ferdinand was his father and Isabella was his mother. So he inherited uh, all of, almost all of the Iberian Peninsula too, uh, and the New World uh, and uh, parts of Italy. Problem is in those days more than it perhaps would be today, uh, so much territory was as much a problem as a benefit. And so he had rebellion in, in Spain uh, as he was trying to merge the kingdoms of his, his uh, two grandparents. Uh, he had uh, war with France. He had pirates in the Mediterranean. He had a, a kind of uh, papacy problem in that the Pope didn't always like the emperor and the emperor didn't always like the Pope. And furthermore, the Turk was marching up the, the Balkan Peninsula and, uh, and in 1529, uh, eight years later, actually did threaten to take Vienna itself, the capital of Austria. So, uh, Charles had grown up largely in the Netherlands as a, as a very pious man. He wanted to reform the church, uh, but he didn't understand doctrinal reform and he didn't understand a reform of the church without the papacy. Mm -hmm. So he, he wanted moral reform. He wanted especially the clergy to behave better. And, and he wanted institutional reform. He, he was trying to modernize his own government, wanted to modernize the church as well. Uh, but doctrinal reform and this idea that good works do not save, mm -hmm. uh, he thought would lead to social disorder. Mm -hmm. So Luther posed a threat to the most powerful man in the nation, in the world. Yes, and really to the pillars of society. Mm -hmm. I think that I think that'd be interesting for us to dive into when we get to the Diet of Worms, when we talk about that lasting impact. Mm -hmm. So we have Charles V. Mm -hmm. controlling arguably one of the largest empires in Europe at this time. 
and he decides he's going to summon Luther, some little known heretic in his territory. How, do, how does that come about? Really because Luther had a prince, Frederick the Wise, uh, who was uh, a powerful prince as well, who was uh, protecting Luther. Uh, Luther and Frederick never met so far as we know. Uh, and if they had, they, neither one probably would have uh, made that public. But uh, Frederick, uh, who was also a very pious man and had this grand collection of indulgences that Luther just ruined uh, with his 95 theses uh, uh, questioning indulgence practice. But uh, Frederick was a very pious man. He also wanted to protect uh, German liberties over and against the papacy. Uh, there was already strong antagonism. Uh, the Germans thought the Italian uh, popes were, were robbing them blind with their, uh, with their indulgences and all sorts of other fees that uh, the church demanded. Uh, and so there, there was that tension and, and rivalry in the background. So uh, I suppose under the best of circumstances for Charles, Luther simply would have been handed over to the church officials by uh, Frederick and taken to Rome and, and and, and burned uh, there or maybe even in Germany. But uh, Frederick said, and, and some of the other princes too said, we've got to give Germans fair trials. And so Charles more or less reluctantly said, okay, let him come, I'll give him a safe conduct. Now Luther recognized that a hundred years before John Hus uh, from Prague uh, in Bohemia had had a safe contact, uh, conduct to go to the Council of Constance and it hadn't helped him any. He was burned at the stake there in, in 1415. Uh, so, so it was an act of courage that, that Luther even showed up, uh, but he did. And uh, by this time, his, the publications that had spread his reputation made him a, a very popular figure. So, so crowds came out and when he could preach, he was forbidden to preach, but he preached anyway along the way uh, because the uh, local Augustinians where he stayed at night uh, invited him to preach. And uh, so uh, there, were, there were people all along the way just, just um, cheering him on and encouraging him. So Dr. Kolb, um, so we have Martin Luther coming from Witten, Wittenberg in Germany um, but this diet was held in Worms. What is the geographical distance between Wittenberg and Worms? A good day. It's a, a good, <laughs> I'll have to edit that. A good question. Uh, it, it took him about uh, five or six days, I think, to get there. Uh, uh, it's not too far today. You could drive it probably in four or five hours, six hours maybe, depending on the traffic on the German Autobahn, of course. But um, the, it, it was not a, a, a nearby town. Mm -hmm. Worms was a very prominent town. It's interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, it was one of the, the chief headquarters in which um, that rich German Jewish culture grew in the Middle Ages. It, it uh, uh, lies not too far from, from Speyer where there was a, another uh, uh, large Jewish community. And then from Mainz uh, where the Archbishop Albrecht that was Luther's rival 
mm -hmm. uh, ruled, but uh, the Jewish community there really had a rich intellectual history, rich uh, history of civic participation, despite occasional persecution. At any rate, Worms was, was one of all six, seven, eight cities in Southern Germany uh, where the, the diets would meet. We know uh, from Lutheran history that they also met in Augsburg, for instance, mm -hmm. but they met in a little town called Hagenau and they met in, in Regensburg and, and Frankfurt. But this one um, met in Worms and, uh, and when Luther got to Worms, the people turned out just as enthusiastically as they had along the way and he was welcomed into the town. So he was treated as um, like a local hero then. Yes, yeah, very, very popular. Mm -hmm. uh, and that of course made the emperor and uh, especially the, uh, the uh, papal legate who was representing the interests of the papacy very, very nervous. Uh, Jerome Aleander was, was a, a, a well-seasoned uh, papal diplomat and uh, he had had experience serving in, uh, well, what we would call today the Netherlands, but he knew the German scene well. So he was a good, rep good choice for representing the, the interests of the papacy. And he complained bitterly. He wanted Luther to be arrested immediately, and he didn't think he should get a chance to stand before the Diet and try to explain himself. Mm -hmm. So there were all these political tensions and a lot of political maneuvering and negotiation that were that was going going on while Luther was coming, and then once he he got there, uh, and appeared before the Diet, that negotiation continued for a week or more. Mm -hmm. So we have Charles V calling together this diet because he wants to essentially quell any political or doctrinal dissensions. Um, he calls forth Martin Luther because he wants to honor the requests of the German princes for Luther to have a fair trial. Luther comes into Worms and he's welcomed as a local hero, thus irritating the king as well as the papal legate. Yeah. Now we're in Worms. What transpired at this diet or this um, essentially congressional session? Well, um, we think that Luther's appearance before the diet was most important. Charles probably thought getting the tax monies that he wanted out of the out of the princes was most important. Uh, it was it was like uh, most political assemblies. First of all, about financing government, but uh, but. The Luther affair was really very important. And so um, he arrives, has an evening to relax, though we can't really imagine he relaxed much, uh, especially because people, important people wanted to come visit him. He didn't, he didn't give autographs to the common people, but uh, some uh, church officials, some um, uh, scholars uh, and, and others came to, uh, actually to encourage him. So then the next day he, he appeared before uh, the emperor and was uh, essentially uh, asked two questions. Are these your writings? And there was a pretty good collection of the things he had published. He had published an awful lot by 1521. Um, he was on his way to becoming the, the single most popular author in Europe uh, in the 16th century. Uh, so he could say, are these your writings? And then do you recant? Th those were the two questions he was supposed to answer. Uh, 
and what he said was, I guess so, as he looked over the pile. Actually, his, uh, his colleague from the law faculty in Wittenberg, uh, Jerome Scherf, asked uh, for the titles to be read. So the list was read. And, uh, and Luther said, well, there, there are different things here. Um, so can I have a day to think about it? Well, that wasn't in the plan, but Charles V didn't know what to do. And so he said, okay. So Luther got to go back to the room that he was sharing with some friends from Wittenberg, some counselors of, of the elector. And, uh, and again, visitors came to encourage him and to, to say, stand strong. Mm -hmm. So the next day, uh, he's placed on the agenda toward the end of the day. They, as I said, have not really more important things uh, to discuss. Everybody was worried, but they were hoping he would simply recant and it would, it would be a very short affair. Mm -hmm. And uh, instead he came in and explained that some of his writings had, had simply been pious devotional writings. He had written on the, on the Lord's Supper and on baptism and on and confession and absolution. He had uh, written his own version of the medieval art of dying book for, for use uh, by people of, of uh, uh, the congregations when a priest wasn't available and a relative was dying or, or by the dying themselves. Uh, there was a meditation on Christ's passion and so forth. So those he didn't want to repudiate at all. There were others that were more controversial, uh, but that simply taught what was in scripture. And he had taken an oath um, almost a decade earlier to teach the Bible for the for and to the church. So he, he wasn't gonna repudiate those. And then he said, there are some in which I just was too um, angry and too sharp in my criticism and whatnot. And I'm really sorry about that. Mm -hmm. So then came the question, uh, well, first of all, the, the representative uh, of uh, the emperor who was actually an official of the Archbishop of Trier one of the people who was sort of a moderating, mediating uh, personality, uh, he said, uh, "Well, that's not adequate. You don't, you can't divide your works. Do you recant or not?" And that's when Luther said uh, his favorite, famous words, um, and I've I've actually written them down since I haven't memorized them. <laughs> uh, the, what we have here is a report that Luther himself composed. Um, but I suspect that he did it not only on the basis of his memory, but on the basis of uh, possibly even notes made by some of the electoral officials because they kept pretty careful track of what was going on at a diet for the, for the elector. So Luther said, uh, unless I am convinced by the testimony of scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either the Pope or councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to God's word. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me, amen. And uh, of course the, the assembly just broke out uh, in, in chaos, not really chaos, but havoc. And uh, some were cheering and some were booing. And, and uh, so there, it was clear that there were strong reactions on both sides. 
uh, in the assembly. And Luther was taken out, one of the Spanish soldiers uh, that had, was in the Imperial Guard said, to the stake with him. And, uh, and that, was, that was the end of the drama, but it was real drama. Mm-hmm. So he kind of, you know, I guess broke society at that moment. He said, he basically spoke back to the powers that be and declared that he wasn't going to recant or change his ways. And that threw society into a frenzy. And so what happens to him? I mean, we we know he isn't caught and executed, but clearly they were trying to do that at some time. So Mm -hmm. what happens? Um, He stays around for about a week of negotiations. Hmm. And, uh, and then it does, it's clear that this isn't going to turn out particularly well. Uh, so he leaves town, probably at the advice of the elector's uh, advisors. He probably had said, uh, had, had heard, uh, you may not make it back to Wittenberg, but it won't be all that bad from some of his friends from Wittenberg. He was going into protective custody at the one of the electors' castles at the Wartburg, mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, they left town. They had an imperial knight uh, appointed by Charles to uh, guarantee the safe passage, the safe conduct. So Charles did keep his word, unlike uh, the emperor in 1415. Mm-hmm. But um, then, near the Wartburg, uh, the uh, wagon in which he was riding was attacked by horsemen and uh, his friend Nicholas von Amsdorf uh, acted really scared. Uh, I suspect Amsdorf knew maybe even better than Luther what was going to happen. But the driver and the students who were with them were convinced and uh, so the horsemen dragged Luther off and, and put him in the Wartburg where he spent almost a year uh, a year in which he was terribly productive. Uh, he uh, translated the New Testament. He started uh, the first uh, uh, evangelical Protestant uh, continuing education program. He wrote a book of sermons for uh, priests who wanted to bring the Reformation message uh, and r- wrote a number of other uh, fairly important treatises uh, though he was pretty impatient and, and wasn't really enjoying life uh, all that much in in isolation. Wow. And so I, I think that one, he was very lucky that he had friends to quote unquote kidnap him. Yeah. And two, this year he spends in protective custody, um, you know, I it's been said some of his finest work comes from this period. And like you said, he translates the New Testament, which um, our fellow Lutherans in Germany still somewhat use today in their Bible. So what what is the lasting effect, I guess, of diet? Where does the Reformation go from here? Why, why is the Diet of Worms so such an important moment? Um, about 30 years later, 35 years later, uh, one of his students from the 1540s, a man named Ludwig Rabus, uh, composed a, a martyrology. It was really the first of the Protestant martyrologies. Uh, John Fox actually knew uh, 
Prabhas, and so did uh, the French Huguenot uh, martyrologist Jean Crespin. Uh, they both were in Strasbourg, where Prabhas uh, was a pastor. Uh, uh, shortly before, all three of them produced their martyrologies, and Prabhas uh, counted Luther among the martyrs because he said martyr in Greek means testifier, mm -hmm. witness. And he gave witness not only at Worms, but throughout his life, but especially at Worms. Uh, and he stood there and, and, uh, and, and said, uh, this, is, this is the truth and I have to confess it. He probably didn't say, here I stand, I can do no, no other. Uh, God help me, amen. We know that he said, God help me, amen, at the end of his little speech, but it's a, about a generation later, a quarter of a century later, before the words, um, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, uh, appear in any texts. Um, I, I like to think that if he didn't say it, he now wishes he had, uh, because it really does exemplify what he did. Uh, and um, and, and took his, his stand um, on the basis of scripture mm -hmm. uh, for, for witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, there are actually a couple of um, words in, his, for, in the speech we do have that uh, sometimes my students uh, stumble over uh, he says at the beginning, uh, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of scripture or by clear reason, and the, uh, the um, typical student of Luther says, by clear reason, I thought Luther didn't like reason. I thought he called reason a whore. Well, uh, it is true that he had some nasty things to say about uh, reason and philosophy and Aristotle. But when he does that, I'm convinced from the context that he's always referring to Aristotle's kind of reason and philosophy that tried to define what it means to be human apart from a creator God. Uh, Aristotle has an unmoved mover, but not a personal creator who's in conversation and community with his, his human creatures. And so I think that the, the bad things Luther says about reason, uh, I'll go back to, to that particular focus. But um, Luther uh, certainly commended reason as a great gift of God. Mm -hmm. And so I think what he means by uh, uh, clear reason here is what we might say common sense. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's a common sense that for Christians uh, flows out of the scriptures and so uh, he's, he's not saying, well, decide either whether scripture or clear reason is going to be your, your authority. But clear reason is the, the gifts that God gives us to interpret and, and apply the scriptures. And then the other uh, word that we stumble over is uh, my conscience is captive to the word of God. We think of captive as, as this voice that tells us what's right from wrong. And uh, uh, for Medieval theologians, for the instructors that Luther learned from, the synderesis or the, the conscience was a good deal more than that. It's, um, uh, it's not quite our whole worldview or faith, but it gets much closer to that 
than simply the voice that says that's right, that's wrong. And so he's he's really saying I'm I'm bound by the scripture I've quoted, and my whole way of looking at reality is captive to the word of God. And so that's when he says, I cannot and will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. And so I think uh, in our day and age um, where uh, there are uh, certain voices that are more hostile toward Christianity probably in North America than there were in my youth, uh, but around the world where, where Christians are, are being persecuted uh, in one way or another, uh, Luther's example at Worms is, um, is really an example we can take seriously. Um, I do have a story that I have to tell in this regard, though. About uh, 30 years ago, uh, I was with a, a group of, of uh, U.S. American uh, high school students and uh, sometimes their grandparents. It was, a, it was a supposedly for youth groups, but uh, the, the youth, uh, some of us were only youth in our distant memories. And uh, we went on a tour that was scheduled to go behind the Iron Curtain. The trouble is it was scheduled for 1990 and there was no Iron Curtain left. But we still went to uh, East Germany, which was still an independent state, and to Poland to visit churches um, under, the, under the leadership of Herb Brokering. Uh, you know his Earth and All Stars and, and a number of his hymns. Um, he was a uh, pastor in the American Lutheran Church uh, at that time. Well, Herb was a poet, and he was our leader, but he didn't always tell people like me, who was supposed to be sort of a color man for my bus of about 45 people. He didn't tell us what was coming. Well, when we got off the plane, a little bit foggy uh, after a trip from the United States over the Atlantic, uh, we got off in Frankfurt and took the bus immediately to Worms. And we were standing on what is a kind of grassy uh, hill now where the building stood where Luther said, or would have said, here I stand. And Herb pulls a, a, a fast one kind of on the bus mentors that I was um, and said, uh, now your, your mentors are going to, uh, going to uh, tell you about a time where they have in their lives said, here I stand, I can do no other. Well, I usually don't have this presence of mind, but in the three minutes or so that my group took to sort itself out and assemble in one corner of that grassy knoll, I was moved to say, um, hmm, I, can't, I can't really remember a time when I've had to say, here I stand, I can do no other for our Lord. Um, as a matter of fact, we were just a few, um, not terribly many meters from the uh, cathedral in Worms. I said, if they would line us up against the cathedral over there with submachine guns and say, uh, deny Christ or die, I know that my immediate reaction would be, oh, I'm sure we can work out some, some uh, equitable compromise here. I don't think I have the gift of martyrdom that, that gave Luther the courage to stand before the diet and say, 
Uh, I can do no other. Um, but I do have confidence that the Holy Spirit will give me that gift if I need it. And, and I suspect that uh, you as seminarians, all of us really, uh, shouldn't try to work up a, a spirit of martyrdom uh, in ourselves. But we should be thinking about times when increasingly we'll have to pay a cost for, for witness to our Lord. And, uh, and that's been true in every era of the, of the church. Even as I was a kid, there were probably situations that fellow Christians, certainly there were uh, in uh, the racial tensions of that time and all. And so um, it's probably not a bad thing to think about, not to say, yes, I have that courage. I think that's a recipe for disaster when the time comes. But to say, the Lord's with us and uh, he'll stand by us, as he did by Luther. Uh, we wouldn't be talking about him uh, uh, 500 years later uh, if, if he hadn't served God's good purposes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely beautifully said. I've never heard it be put that way. And I think that's really, you know, this story is very inspiring, I guess, in our own lives, where thankfully in the United States, we aren't suffering, Christians aren't suffering persecution like those in international territories, but mm -hmm. we still live in a society where proclaiming your faith can come as a cost, mm -hmm. um, even among other Christians who might not agree with your the yeah. traditions you come from. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Cole, for sharing that story with us. That was, and thank you for the vulnerability with that. I think it's, um, I think also what's really remarkable is, um, you know, you have this diet of worms that kind of becomes a launching point where Martin Luther is a local hero, but you know, with everything scandalous or controversial, it just becomes infinitely more popular. And you can kind of see that today. And, you know, this lasting impact of Martin Luther, mm -hmm. um, which uh, even if people aren't Lutheran, you have to give Martin Luther credit for everything he did do, launching the Reformation and things like that. And uh, I have friends across the spectrum of, of Christianity who, uh, who have a, a favorite Luther treatise. Uh, he does speak to our age in a, in a way that not all historical figures do. Mm -hmm. But he kind of got to the heart of the human dilemma uh, and recognized that uh, God's law opens up cracks, whether it accuses us or not. Mm -hmm. It's always nagging at us, uh, reminding us that sometimes because of what we do, but very often because of what other people do to us, uh, our lives are, are tattered and torn and that, that the presence of Jesus Christ with us um, uh, in the various forms in which he comes in his word, uh, oral, written, sacramental, that uh, that presence of Christ uh, is what can uh, sustain us and, and give us hope and, uh, and uh, a larger framework for, for carrying out God's commands and taking care of our neighbor. Mm -hmm. That's uh, actually a huge source of discussion that Thomas and I have had on this podcast, which is you know, Martin Luther wasn't necessarily a systematician. Mm -hmm. He was very pastoral and, you know, spoke in such an earthy manner, even translating the German into English, you know, you can still pick up on some of that earthiness, some of that, yeah. you know, inherent, sometimes vulgar, yeah. uh, 
uh, language that Luther uses, but I find that endearing. And we actually talked about um, Martin Luther's sermon on death and dying. Yeah. And mm -hmm. How comforting that sermon is, especially in North America, where um, our views on the afterlife are all over every which way. And Martin Luther's, you know, sermon just really speaking to the heart of humanity's fear of death and how our focus just needs to be on Christ and everything else be darned, you know, yeah. focus on the love of God. And that grace is just immensely powerful, I think, even today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that we don't treat death as death should be treated. Yeah. The last few years, I've spent a whole lot more time reading Luther's sermons. I had read the 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 famous theses and and treatises and so forth. And and in his sermons, it's so clear how often he emphasizes Christ risen for us. He mm -hmm. died for us. That's very important too for Luther. But um, the the resurrection victory, and he has these little phrases like swallowing up death and gulping down the devil and <laughs> shooing up uh, our sin. And uh, uh, he's got a, he's a creative preacher. And that, that message is what sustained him and was sustaining him already in Worms. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, he launched almost every single Protestant denomination has some aspect of Luther Mm -hmm. um, whether that's Calvinism focusing on faith and grace with different interpretations, but still mm -hmm. most Protestants still rely on those, that faith aspect contrary to good works, I guess. Mm -hmm. I've had an interesting experience in that, in that regard. Uh, and one shared by a Brazilian doctoral student of mine. Uh, when I was teaching in India 10 years ago, 12, 14 years ago, uh, I was teaching a master of theology level course. So we had people who already had done their basic theological study um, in Pentecostal churches. And uh, it was a four-week seminar focusing on Luther's freedom of a Christian and, and on the Babylonian captivity of the church. Mm -hmm. The first week, you could tell that the, the Pentecostals were... All, almost all of them were quite uncomfortable thinking, why should I have to learn something about Luther? But the national exam had two works of Luther on it. So they, <laughs> they thought it was worthwhile, uh, but they didn't think they were gonna get much out of it. The second week you could see the, the lights go on. Uh, somewhere between the sixth and the 10th day, uh, almost, all of the students I had over, I had offered this seminar three, three times. Uh, the, the lights would start going on. And in the third and fourth weeks, they were my best students. And I don't think it was because it convinced them that part of their own tradition was wrong. I think what it did was to answer questions, especially in the area of justification by faith, that they had not posed in the way that, that uh, Luther posed them and that, that he, he bequeathed that, those questions to us. And uh, so I, I continually had the impression that they were finding tips for, as you say, pastoral care that, uh, that they just hadn't thought about before, but that made sense 
also in the context of uh, life on the Indian subcontinent. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's, thank you. That's, it's, that practical application is very helpful. Yeah, that's the way Luther's theology actually works. Mm -hmm. And maybe um, Thomas and I talk about this too, is that this, I think the church needs to do a better job reclaiming that pastoral theology Whereas in the, you know, early, mid 1900s, it was very much systematic theology, but it was so heady, um, you know, reading Karl Barth or Paul Tillich, who I absolutely adore, but it, that doesn't work for your average layperson, you mm -hmm. know. And I think uh, what, what I didn't mention in terms of what happened before Worms, uh is that from uh, from his ordination on, Luther, as an Augustinian friar, who was not at all restricted to the, his cloister, he was supposed to be out in congregations helping priests uh, preach and, and uh, hear confessions. That's what the Augustinians, the Dominicans, the Franciscans were supposed to do, in contrast, say, to the Benedictines or Carthusians. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's why Luther... Uh, wrote the 95 Theses on Indulgences because there were there was a pastoral crisis going on and he knew good pastoral care and the Salem indulgences wasn't that that wasn't fitting together very well. Uh, so he brings that out of his medieval heritage uh, and then in in his reading of scripture and his reading of Augustine seeing how grace works and how faith works and how uh, this twofold righteousness that we are passively righteous in God's sight and actively righteous in our neighbor's lives. Uh, all that flowed out of this setting of pastoral care uh, that he brought to his reading of the scriptures. Wow. I, I think that we'd have to do a whole nother episode to talk about that. Um, I can't think of a better way to end our show today. That's absolutely, that's some food for thought for our listeners. Absolutely. Let's this consider that. This has just been a delight, Jaron and Thomas. Uh, and blessings on your further studies. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for being here. Um, we truly appreciate it. I think that you have given us so much food for thought and um, we, we really appreciate it. Thank you. I actually, I do have one last question, Dr. Kolb. Um, for, for our readers, um, if they like enjoying books, um, what's a good um, introductory resource to the Diet of Worms if people wanted to do more information on that? You know, Thomas, there's, there's not been anything recent, interestingly enough, that I would recommend, but uh, E. Gordon Rupp, R-U-P-P, -P, was a, a British post-World War II theologian. I think he was a Methodist who came to Luther's defense. Uh, the British had really uh, tried to drag uh, uh, Luther through the mud for propaganda purposes uh, at, in World War II. And, uh, and there were several English uh, Reformation scholars that were really fine. Uh, Philip Watkins, was one, but E. Gordon Rupp has a little book that's got the Diet of Worms in the in the title, and I think that's one of the best things that I've read in a long time. There are a couple of, of uh, German books, but but Rupp's is probably still 
or you go to a, a, a biography, a longer biography, and read the, that chapter. Uh, my favorite is is uh, Scott Hendricks, mm-hmm. uh, who was at uh, Lutheran Southern and then at Philadelphia, at Gettysburg, and no Philadelphia, and then Gettysburg before he went to Princeton. It's now retired, but um, Scott's. Martin Luther, visionary reformer, is the name of his biography, is I think the best of the of the Luther studies. Surely there is also work that you've done that you could recommend, uh, maybe. Um, actually, the things that I've done on Luther are more theological and biographical. I have a, a book with Oxford University Press called Martin Luther, Confessor of the Faith. That's a kind of summary overview of Luther's theology. Um, I think that'd be good too. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good also place, you know, you can't, Luther's theology as well as his biography. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, you have to ransom three children to raise the money, but uh, there's a commentary on his Freedom of a Christian from 1520 that I wrote for Fortress Academic came out last year or the year before, maybe 2019, um, which was a fascinating study. I had read On the Freedom of a Christian a number of times in my life, but when I had to actually write a commentary on it, uh, you look at things much more carefully than just when you're doing a casual reading. And that that always was one of my favorites, but it's so rich. Um, and so uh, I'd read Luther before I'd read Kolb, but um, <laughs> to, to get a little historical setting and background and impact, mm-hmm. um, I try to trace the, the interpretation of that and use of that treatise then right up to our own time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thank you again for those wonderful resources, Dr. Kolb. It's been a real joy to be with you too. Thank you very much. Thank you. Stay safe. Hopefully we're out of this pandemic soon. Um, We wish you a great rest of your week. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank Thank you.